everybody. Welcome back to another all-new X is for Show, your premier media response show. As always, you can check the show out on X is for Show on all your social. As for me, I'm Nico, and you can check me out at Nico Action on all those very same social. And that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And what a fearless night we have ahead of us. You're really committing to Soch, huh? Oh, Soch hard. This is two shows in a row. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm TK, and you can find me on social media uh, at TK Elemental. Yeah, and that makes me your producer, Kevo, and you can find me on the Soches, Soshi, Socherino at Kevo Really. That's K E V O R E A L L Y. Oh, I think. <laughs> yeah, we had a temporary. Uh, we fixed that. So, um,. Yeah. I am so excited to be here talking about Daredevil today. We are here to talk about two different Daredevil number ones. Now, what's interesting about these two different Daredevil number ones, volume two and volume eight, are that they are two volumes that both require uh, a little bit of like revamp and reset uh, to make it all work super well. Now, TK, I've read volume two before, but I don't believe you have. Uh, I had not. And now I've read it a few times through. Uh, And I'll be honest with you, I am actually... So we had originally intended to do this episode last week, but some stuff came up and we decided to work on a different plan. And I'm actually actually super psyched about that because I had done two read-throughs, but I don't think... There was a lot of stuff that I was like, well, I'm getting this wrong because that would just be nonsense and Nico will explain it to me at some point. Uh, and you know, before we had time to talk about it, we started working on another subject, but we finally got to talking about it in the last week as we were preparing. And I feel like I did like a very cursory reread, uh, in the hours up to this episode. And I feel like I really understood this run a lot better in ways that made some of it a lot better and some of it a lot worse. Uh, I know that feeling. You know, it's a really interesting thing to take a look back at the arc that really is the thing that put the world of Daredevil on the map. And when I say put the world of Daredevil on the map, I'm specifically referring to the fact that it was sort of a rough time for Daredevil. So let's let's start by getting up uh, an image of what we're here to talk about today. Right, so... We're going to be taking a look at a number of the uh, Daredevil number ones that have been, I don't know, the hallmark of a a series is its relaunch at a number one. That's like the whole point of, you know, oh, look, this is starting a new era. This is beginning something. But I feel like in the last couple of years, as we're going to see when we start getting into the specifics of Daredevil and uh, these runs, that the number ones start coming a lot faster. We're taking a look at the second ever Daredevil number one, launched in 1998, as well as the most recent Daredevil number one, which came out a little bit earlier this year. Now, TK, you and I have talked a lot in the last couple of years about the frequency of number ones and the shortening of eras. Now, we just, you know, I brought you into Daredevil with the run by Chips Darsky. And the first volume he did was 36 issues. Then it was followed by a volume that was 14 issues. Now we're at this new number one. This is our third number one for Daredevil in five years. That's a very different Marvel Universe than when this run began. Is this volume eight? Yes. This is volume eight. Yeah. So 
we go from volume two in 1998 right mm-hmm. and then you know that's so that's 15 years sorry 25 years yeah so it's been 25 years since guardian devil and in that time we've had volume three four five six seven eight launch so that's like every three or four years there's a new volume of daredevil yep that's pretty weird and you know i think it really talks a little bit about the nature of the changing um changing industry so i want to take a moment to pull up a slideshow that i created for this episode and go uh, a little bit over this material right so you know, when Daredevil first kicked off back in 1964, the main thing about it was it was clearly trying to conjure up images of other books. You've got a giant Spider-Man on it. You've got the full Fantastic Four on there. There really is a desire to sort of create a uh, a visual that reflects other things in the Marvel Universe. And I feel like because of that, Daredevil started as a second tier character he kind of started as like the alpha second tier character and now he's sort of like the lowest down major character and for that reason i think you know when you look back at 1964's daredevil number one he looks so silly this really is a very different marvel universe and i think it took daredevil kind of until the guardian devil run in 1998 to get that sort of respect But what was the vibe at the time from readers? I mean, it was beloved. It was like, I mean, really like it, you know, we're, we'll get into it because I don't want to jump into uh, 1998, but there, it was really well received because there had been nothing going on in Daredevil. Uh, in no, the I 90s. mean, what was the vibe for this number one? I mean, I, I can't tell you. I'm not, I, there isn't really enough good data on it. Yeah. All there really is, is nostalgia. There's yeah. people saying, I loved it. There's people saying, I remember getting it as a kid. There's uh, The other problem is that there weren't people who were really reading and writing in letters. And when they right. did read and write in letters, they didn't read and write in letters that people really wanted to read. So uh, the writers and editors would just have other people write letters for them. Yeah. And they would just put them in themselves. So there's really no way to gauge if this was really popular or not in 1964. Because whenever I see imagery of Daredevil, it kind of takes a little bit for him to seem campy. Like, th like this doesn't look campy to me at all. This actually looks very cool and very, like, straightforward. But it's very obvious that there's a chunk of time pre-Miller where it is really just kind of silly. I mean, I appreciate you saying it, it doesn't feel silly to you. I think the little pose in the corner with his arms behind his back like that. He, I just think he does come off kind of clownish early on. And I even really like these stories. But what's interesting a lot uh, to say about this Daredevil era, specifically number one, is this is the only issue drawn by Bill Everett. Bill Everett was known for co-creating a lot of the earliest Marvel heroes. And this is the only issue of Daredevil he would go on to draw. Uh, subsequent issues would feature Wally Wood, as well as uh, John Romita Sr., so it's really it's really fascinating that this is a number one that wasn't done by Jack King Kirby. It wasn't done by any of the other stable of the bullpen, and yet it would go on to be such a definitive, you know, look for the character, though it is definitely the yellow suit does not last for a good reason.
So to take a look at a few more uh, early major issues of Daredevil, Daredevil runs actually, they kind of don't last very long as a rule. While Stan Lee wrote 1 to 50, with the exception of issue 10, which was a fill-in by then-penciler Wally Wood, Roy Thomas kicked on in 1969's Daredevil 51. Jerry Thomas would take over in January of 71, so like not even two full years later with Daredevil 72. The title changes to being Daredevil and the Black Widow, and then it goes back to the Man Without Fear uh, from issue 92 to 108. So Black Widow was the co-star by name for a year and a half before in 1974, Tony Isabella comes on for, as you can see, uh, six issues. Uh, it's not a great run, and that's December 1974, which brings us to Marv Wolfman in uh, May of 1975. And in Daredevil 124, he comes on, and that's not really the big thing. The big thing is that he co-creates Bullseye, who first appears in Daredevil 131 later that year. Editor-in-chief Jim Shooter had to get his paws on Daredevil, and he co-wrote uh, 141 and did a short run. Which brings us to Roger McKenzie in December of 1977, who would go on to be Frank Miller's co-creative partner for the early part of his run. So like, all I can think to myself here is it takes so, so long for Daredevil as a title to get to the sort of stuff that we recognize to be Daredevil. Right. Which is funny because I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that nobody has been super interested in mining the old stuff the way they have been with, for instance, the X-Men. Uh, you know, nobody wants to take Telford Porter, you know, uh, Daredevil's equivalent of the Vanisher and put him on X-Force and give him cancer that they will only cure if he teleports them. Uh, but, you know, the Vanisher sucks. Uh, and, like, the original Vanisher is lame and stupid. And, you know, there's just always some group of people that read early X-Men, uh, even if they're, like, our age or younger, that got their hands on early X-Men and were like, that was cool, I'm going to remix it. It's definitely, it doesn't seem like that is so much the case with Daredevil, where people were like, I was so taken aback by those early defining stories where, you know, Stan Lee was really telling this great metaphor about disability, uh, you know, living with disability in the modern age that I've got to bring back. Well, I mean, and just to jump in on that, the people who do, it's such a difficult, embarrassing situation to deal with because it's like Stiltman. And yes, right. we have recaptured Stiltman and the yeah. magic is there. We are very protective of Stiltman. That but, is a weird one-off. That's the exception that proves the rule. Exactly. That's yeah. really what it is. You know, I mean, and it's I guess in part you because, could say... Sorry, go ahead. Well, it's in part because these stories aren't great. And I, I really right. appreciate your outside perspective being really positive on them. But they're still... Well, no, I'm saying they they look cool. I'm not... I, I don't... You know, a lot of these I did not read. Uh, and I have... I mean, you know, yeah. I've attempted in... Like, I barely can read old X-Men. Uh, and, like, I mean, like, I don't even... Guys, I'll be the one to say it. The Dark Phoenix Saga is, like, not an easy read. It's, like, not a fun read. Uh, it's uh, iconic, of course. Couldn't have anything without it. But, like, is it my first choice? No. I'm just glad I read it when I was a kid and I didn't know that there was a lot else to look for. But now it's very 
Uh, ooh, it's lots of words to say a very quick thought. Uh, so there's a lot of the old books that I find a little bit insufferable. And they really have to kind of inform the later stuff. So, like, my biggest takeaway from starting uh, Volume 2 is I kind of now want to read a little bit more about um, Matt's relationship with Natasha. So, you know, I'm looking at that Daredevil and the Black Widow, and I'm thinking, hey, I'd be curious. It's a great era. Uh, Tori and I really love it. And it's a thing that, you know, if you're a big Daredevil fan, you really get a sense of it. Um, I don't know. I really recommend that era uh, pretty greatly. But it really does take until 1980, April, with uh, Daredevil 165 for Frank Miller to really start to direct the series into a positive angle. Elektra doesn't show up in the title until 168. From there, we see Kingpin show up in 170. And then Frank Miller actually ends his run in 191 back in October of 1982. So it's really interesting that that, you know, landmark era for X-Men ran 15 years, but for Daredevil is just, you know, four. So from here, <laughs> yeah, so from here, I want to say that we go into a short run by Denny O'Neill. It's not really well regarded. It's really just a run that exists to fill the gap. Frank Miller left. Nobody wanted to follow Frank Miller. And in that time, Miller didn't have the most work going on at Marvel. He did little things here and there, like he did the Electra Saga. Now, the Electra Saga is mostly just a reprint collection of the original issues of Daredevil that feature Elektra, but it actually does feature a short sequence that is unique to this Elektra saga that would go on to be reprinted in the Elektra Omnibus. And after that, you know, Frank Miller had already reestablished a really positive relationship at Marvel, and he comes back and he does Badlands, which is uh, Daredevil 219. It's pretty famous for never once having Matt be Daredevil, and Daredevil is not mentioned by name. It's a really interesting issue. Uh, but that leads into Frank Miller and David Mazzuccelli's landmark legendary Born Again, which is Daredevil 225 to 233 from December 85 to August 86. And this is in many ways considered like the best Daredevil run of all time. It certainly hasn't aged particularly well in some regards, but I think if you read it, it's impossible not to see that that is specifically what I think Kevin Smith was hoping to recapture with his guardian devil. He was thinking, oh, you guys think you know what a born again should be like? Well, uh, this is 90s born again, guys. This is, this is crazy. This is mall rats born again. And so, like, I think that really is what we sort of saw happen. But it took so long. And whereas Chris Claremont never left the X-Men or, you know, Wolfman and Perez stayed pretty tightly on Teen Titans, Miller left. And the stuff in between... Man, uh, the Denny O'Neill run is, I mean, trash. And, like, I'm not coming for Denny O'Neill, but it's about Micah Sin, a man who is vaguely a white South African who is so big and muscular and sexy and hairy uh, and white. I just need to be clear. He is white um, that all the women in New York can't resist him. And it's not that he has powers of pheromones. It's just his pheromones are so sexually delicious no woman can turn him down. Like, Foggy's wife leaves him for this guy. Yikes. It's a, it's a tough run. 
So, you know. Oh. No, I mean, I just... Uh... <laughs> I, I, it's fascinating thinking about the fact that we're about to pick up on Born Again for the MCU. And mm. we've just kind of really shuffled with Daredevil in a way, like, kind of not dissimilar to how the X Men stories really just kind of shuffled all over the place. Like, we never really went to a specific origin place uh, that sort of matched with comic book origins. And after, you know, the Netflix show, the amazing Ben Affleck film, um, to be going all the way back to this particular story uh, as, like, the... And this was my first... Like, when you and I started talking about reading Daredevil, this was the first thing that you had me read. Uh, and so for this to kind of kick off the MCU, I think, is very interesting. Although how much it really hues to this or is just kind of a reference to the name will be interesting to see. Could you go back one slide just very quickly? I'm just really most blown away seeing this timeline out in front of me by how far from the origin point of Daredevil so many things that Daredevil is known for are and how far apart so many of them are from each other. Like Bullseye's first issue being 75 is wild. Electra being 81 is wild. And then the next slide seeing where, um, you know, Born Again lands, where Kingpin's first issue lands, and all these things that are sort of iconic things for Daredevil, like 20 years almost after the character's inception. And that's why I liken it to the fact that for X-Men... The X-Men were first created in 1963. They were giant-sized in 75, which is sort of like the effect of Miller coming in and revitalizing Daredevil. But then in 1991, Jim Lee, along with Chris Claremont, together they like reimagined what the X-Men could be in a big 90s way. Daredevil ultimately did get that with Guardian Devil, for better or for worse. But the thing that really is hard to miss is, is that's, I think, why, you know, TK, with you being like, I don't think these covers look that silly. I'm like, okay, but I know what's inside. And it's fighting a guy who looks like an owl, whose power is the power of owl feathers. Because he's not really, you know, menacing for a while. It's just like, I mean, literally, one of his powers is basically being kind of obese and landing on you. It is not great. It's wild so, that uh, the owl was supposed to have Apocalypse's place in X-Factor. Oh, man, because Bob Layton's just a cool old guy. You know, he was just like an old school guy who wanted to write old school stories. And then, uh, you know, we, like Louise Simonson comes in and goes, ah. It needs to be a horrifying blue cyborg. It cannot be an old fat man in an owl suit. Uh, that's correct. That is 100% um, correct. So then we, by the way, uh, Born Again is my favorite uh, like Marvel comic of all time, uh, yes. not just because it came out when I was born, but uh, a million reasons. So, you know, Born Again actually starts what's considered the return of Miller, and it's the re it's the Miller Return trilogy. It's Born Again, Electra Assassin one through eight, and Daredevil one, uh, Daredevil Love and War, which is a one shot graphic novel. Uh, and Nascenti takes the reins on Daredevil in Daredevil 236, which came out November of 86. Uh, again, still that same magic year of Born Again. 86 is actually the year the comics were kind of reborn, of course, with things like Watchmen and The Dark Knight. 
so then we get to, uh, you know, the love of TK's life, uh, Typhoid Mary's first issue. Typhoid Mary, I remember, you know, a uh, guy who was best man at my wedding, good friend of mine, Chris Podcasts, who co-created uh, my first podcast with me. He was, you know, so he and I were like, I, we were drunk or smoking something. I could not tell you, but we were like, you know, 20 and, you know, being like, oh, we're home from school, from college. And like, you know, we have all this worldly experience and now we understand everything because we're home from midterms and let's talk about it, you know? And he's like, did you see that Electra movie? That movie? Typhoid? That's not my typhoid. That's not typhoid from my childhood. That's not her. And I remember looking over at him and I was like, okay, which one of us has read Daredevil? You're telling me you're obsessed with a crazy, by the era standards, crazy soap opera actress, uh, super villain, assassin, pyrokinetic. Like, do you know who she is? And he was like, well, no, she's cool. She's Typhoid Mary. I had, I had trading cards with her. And I'm like, ah. So I think what I'm even trying to say is, despite the fact that Typhoid Mary came out two years after I was born, her impact was so significant that by the time Electra came out and featured a pretty rough Typhoid Mary imitation, it was enough to like deeply upset fans who had no idea she was only 25 years old at that point. She was only at the point at which the Daredevil and Electra films came out. She was only as old as Guardian Devil is now. I have more thoughts on that later. Okay. Okay. I love it. Um, we love Electra lives again in this house. Um, this is an Electra lives again house. I don't have, I, I... we love it, but we fully understand if it is not for you, it is a bit inscrutable. You get to see Matt's penis while all of New York burns to the ground. I mean, for some, the dream for some, uh, a bit confusing. I do love that, though. Uh, Who doesn't love a penis during a city on fire? And uh, of note is the fact that this is an Epic Comics release. Oh, that is correct. It is not a Marvel Comics release proper. And they it's like it's right there. It just says Epic Comics on it in that block letters like it means something. It just means it wasn't approved by the comic code. Um, okay. I, I have a lot of feelings. D.D. Chichester, I would love to like sit down and talk to you about how your run was meant to be something so much better. Uh, but D.D. Chichester was the unfortunate guy who followed and Nascenti the way, uh, you know, we said just a few slides ago that... I just want to get the name right. Uh, Denny O'Neill followed... I was like, is it Roger McKenzie or Denny O'Neill? Think, think, think. The way uh, Denny O'Neill followed Frank Miller... Uh, I would not want to be DG Chichester and follow Anne Nascenti. That is, uh, you know, part of what I, you know, we have Darede we have Daredevil genius, Tori Sheehan coming on in a little bit. And, you know, she can speak a whole lot more about it, what it means to be disregarded and disrespected as a woman in comics. But like Anne Nascenti was always just not Frank Miller for coming second and being a woman. They did very different things. They are not even comparable runs. And Nascenti's run is much more concerned with social issues and the realities of uh, children, whereas Frank Miller's is much more concerned with, uh, you know, top stories, uh, rip right from the headlines kind of action. And there's a lot more ninja stuff to the Miller era, but there's a lot more Christian stuff to the Nascenti era. And so that duality gives you a lot of room. 
But so because they're the two big runs on it, the two big modern runs at that time, of course, they're always going to be compared. And Nesenti was never going to be Miller in the cultural respect. So I guess DG Chichester is the guy who follows up the woman who's not the big guy. That is the most also ran description I can think of. And he had been the editor toward the end of the Nesenti run. This guy just never had a chance. And then he goes ahead and he has to do a crossover with Punisher and Nomad. Uh, he has to make a big deal out of 300. He's got to make a meal out of it. And I don't think it works the way he means it to. He has to do um, returning Electra to, the, to Daredevil. He has to do Fall from Grace. This guy has some of the heaviest lifting to do in the Daredevil, you know, oeuvre. And it just does not go off without a hitch. It just does not. So it's a it's a tough time to look back on. But I will note that all of my first comics ever are on this page. Uh, my first comics were Fall from Grace and The Man Without Fear. So uh, all my first comics ever right here on this page. Uh, that Daredevil versus Vapora one shot, that thing is so fucking famous. Um, it's uh, kids don't drink gasoline because gasoline is an evil mistress. Um, so don't do that it. That old classic tale. And if you are interested in knowing a little bit more about Daredevil and Black Widow, you can check them out in uh, Black Widow, Daredevil, Abattoir, which was uh, the final Marvel graphic novel, which was uh, in the line, published in July 1993. Uh, it's by Jim Starlin and Joe Chiodo. It's a uh, kind of standard classic for both characters, even though I don't think it really goes then. We have talked at length about The Man Without Fear 1 through 5, and of course I could talk about it a whole lot more. But uh, this page really represents kind of like 90s excess. You can see how much stuff came out in such a short period of time. You know, I but I get it because I do remember Man Without Fear. I don't uh, think it had the same effect on me that it had on you. But I think it was really designed to get kids of our generation hooked on. It was actually a very smart starting point. Um and it remains one of a bunch of initiatives at Marvel where is it a reshuffling of continuity because it's not quite what had originally happened? Is it just, you know, this is what you need to know. And if it doesn't match, that's not really something worth being concerned about or something that we will resolve. You can just kind of take this and go forward. Um, and in this world where now we're like, if you start telling the, the X-Men's origin story again, that's a reboot. And then we got to talk about reboot rules and then everything that came before doesn't count. It's very interesting that they were just like, yeah, here is a new retelling of what happened to Matt in his early years. Well, and you know, I want to mention that speaking of this era in particular, the thing that's so interesting about that side being on the cover of Daredevil number 325 is Ralph Macchio and Frank Miller had a gentleman's agreement that Electra was not to be used without Miller's permission. And at this point, Ralph Macchio was kind of like, look, Frank Miller, I am scared of you, but I work for a company. Electra can be used. I'm sorry. And it was a big deal. They made this big arc. It introduced the black costume. It's just not a well-loved or remembered time. And all the proof you need 
the guy who introduces the black costume, he's off the book within eight issues. Now, Gregory Wright, who took over the book for a short period, starting with Daredevil 333 in August of 94, it's actually not his first issue of Daredevil. This is so uh, this is so fascinating. He had written like four annuals in a row. He had done annuals during the Anacenti run in the late 80s and only got the title in August of 94. Now, his run would only last a short time, with industry legend J.M. DeMattius taking over at 344. Uh, Electra Root of Evil, Electra's first solo outing as a mini, came out in uh, January of 95. Carl Kiesel, who would return uh, a couple of times to the title, takes over in September of 96. Electra gets an ongoing and a magazine, sure, in September of 96. Uh, and then we get into the, the garbage crossover period, but I can see Kevo is so excited about Electra Magazine. I was going to do the Donna from the West Wing thing. And a boyfriend. Does she get a boyfriend? Because that would just really complete the title. She starts dating Wolverine for a little bit. I'll take it. That really counts. TK, do you remember the hyperinfusion of Daredevil and Elektra into the market? Elektra's even in uh, Marvel vs. DC. She's the fight against Catwoman, which is so unfair. This is about where I step off, actually. Uh, this is... Um, this is a little bit before Operation Zero Tolerance, but even then, I'm not super... You know, I, I have given... I'm familiar with Daredevil from the earlier part of the 90s because at that point I was just like, I already love the X-Men comics. What else is there out there? And uh, I did not enjoy Avengers. Um, I weirdly really enjoyed West Coast Avengers, but then it immediately ended. Um, I was like, this is very novel that they are in California. Um, and then I kind of force works. I couldn't keep me, keep me going long enough. Uh, but yeah, no, I, my familiarity with Daredevil prior to this period was because I was kind of soaking up everything comics that I could. And then I was like, no, I think mostly what works is the X-Men. And then, uh, I was like, the X-Men do not work anymore. I gotta take a break. So I'm not, this, this era is not something I'm really familiar with. Uh, but I mean, I get it. Like this is, this is peak, like, give me hot babes for, for the millennial nerd teens. Well, and it's give me hot babes by specific artists, which is why we get the she crossover, the Witchblade and uh Cyblade crossover, the other she crossover, and then we even get, like, Daredevil, Deadpool, which, by the way, if you're going to make a Typhoid Mary omnibus, that Daredevil, Deadpool annual is, like, quite literally, like, the turning point for her canon. Um, we do get a new run from industry legend Joe Kelly, who is one of the creators of Ben 10. Uh, real cool dude. Uh, but then there's the first of the two Daredevil-Batman crossovers, which is just sort of, like, brooding in red and blue. Uh, a lot of fun there. That one's Daredevil Batman. And then, of course, a few years later, we get Batman Daredevil. But this is where the 90s go off the frigging rails. Electra minus one. Daredevil minus one. There was a whole minus one month. It was... And these minus ones give birth to the zero and the half we have to talk about. 
And then the point ones, I can't even. Uncanny Origins, uh, I have accidentally continued to label Witchblade and Electra, but it actually should say is the origin of Daredevil. Scott Lobdell does four really weird issues in which Daredevil is an amnesiac who thinks he's a French S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. So he did four issues of Daredevil that have nothing to do with Daredevil. But the only thing that happens is Foggy Nelson is like, wait, you're really Daredevil and I'm not going to unlearn it this time? And then the next month they end the title and Kevin Smith gets the book. Wild. But you're missing two things in the in that list. Talk to me about Protection Racket. All right, so Protection Racket is a uh, so Marvel was really excited to experiment with digital comics, right? And so they're looking at how to work with digital comics. And the first thing they realize is they need to learn how to do this in the first place. And early Marvel digital comics are these panel by panel, like solid frames. They've got these little numbers running across the bottom. It's a sort of painful process to try and read them. DG Chichester wrote a few of these uh, uh, early Marvel web comics. And the craziest thing is Marvel kind of has disavowed them. Marvel makes no reference to these. They don't put them online. They don't keep them in any way that's significant. So DG Chichester just put up his uh, literal like page copies of the panels and uh, put them online. And we can all kind of understand why they were disavowed. It is a really tough thing to read. Uh, it looks kind of janky when you put it all together. I did manage to get my hands on all of the panels and arrange them together in a page. And it looks a little rough. It's a little hard to read. Yeah. Unfortunately, they were, you know, as you mentioned, they were, there was no conception of higher resolutions in the future. And there was really no technology to, uh, you know, there was no affordable technology to create in higher resolutions with the hope that, you know, we would have the densely packed pixels per inch that we have on an iPad or something today. Uh, so, you know, if it was 376 by 500, that's just what you did. And the... Uh, problem with the image degradation is the fact of the matter is that we're used to the art looking a little bit better. We need to be able to zoom in a little bit more. We look to be able to interact with it pretty clearly. And it's just very hard to do this way. Yeah, but you, you know, it's a, it's a fun historical document. I wish they would play around with it a little bit. And, you know, I think one of the things that we really need to think about is how much of this art was not meant to survive. You know, early digital art, they had no idea what they were doing. I'm pretty sure the only way to read Protection Racket was at AOL keyword Marvel. So, like, you know, and then shortly thereafter, Daredevil Volume 1 ends. So things like DG Chichester, several writers ago's digital work was nothing Marvel was looking to ensure the long-term success of. Now, at this point, I am going to cut our trip through the endless number ones of Daredevil a little short. We're going to take a look at this much longer project in some total a bit later on another day. And instead today, we're going to focus on Daredevil Volume 2, Number 1, from August 1998 by Kevin Smith and Joe Quesada, as well as Daredevil Volume 8, Number 1, from September 2023 by Saladin Ahmed and Aaron Cooter. 
Now, these two number ones are 25 years apart. And it's so interesting because the first uh, Daredevil relaunch, which came in 1998, was just about 25 years after Daredevil number one. So this does reflect uh, multiple iterations of this singular character identity across a spectrum of time. There's things that have to have changed the way we see blind culture, the way we treat superheroes, the idea of what a lawman is, the identity of the police and the identity of the police and superheroes working together in tandem. A lot has changed since not just 1964, but 1998. And I'm really looking forward to exploring these changes. But before we can even get into that, I want to ask you guys, when you think Daredevil, what's your Daredevil? Is he the laughing swashbuckler? Is he a magic guy? Is he uh, like a lawman? You know, I think it's so interesting that the cover of Daredevil 8, uh, volume 8, number one, the Billy Club hook uh, maybe looks perhaps a little, I don't want to say silly. That's not very fair to say because it's a really great cover. But, uh, you know, it's JRJR. There's no coming for it in my book. But the the hook almost looks like a candy cane topper. Like like for, you would get like a little candy cane toy filled with um, like Hershey Kisses. There's something kind of cartoony about it, and I think that's great, because when Daredevil gets too serious artistically, it doesn't work for me as much. My Daredevil kind of does need to live in multiple worlds. He lives in a world of magic and ninjas and resurrections, but he also lives in a world of Bibles and priests. He lives in a world of superheroes, but he also lives in a world of lawmen where he's actually frequently going up against the establishment. I think for me, Daredevil, if anything, is a study of the saint and sinner of the devil and the the Christian at all times. How about you guys? This is the one of the things I'm still trying to figure out because I really do not resonate with that the very religious and religiously guilty Matt. Uh, and you know, it's interesting because the Smith run kind of posits that Matt is a pretty lapsed Catholic raised in the faith, uh, but doesn't remember CCD anymore. Like doesn't remember the details of CCD and doesn't follow and is not practicing so much now that he has kind of reabsorbed that knowledge in new ways from being active in the community. It's like one of the first lines somebody asks him about like, does he know about this thing? And he's like, I probably learned about it in CCD, but I don't remember now. Um, and he is kind of uh, not at home in the church space physically. Uh, so his experience is very much kind of, uh, you know, similar to how I am not religiously Jewish. I'm not really at this point even culturally Jewish because I, I don't uh, exist with a lot of Jews, but the uh jewishness that i experience is mostly cultural uh and mostly has to do with uh institutions founded and maintained primarily by jewish people uh that you know often might have ties to the religion but are not themselves wildly like the mission day-to-day -day is not religious in the same way that like uh 
Karen knows where to find Matt because he donates to a shelter that is run by the Catholics. But Matt doesn't donate to the shelter because it is a Catholic shelter. He knows about the Catholic shelter because he is a, a Catholic. He grew up in the Catholic faith and right. he sees that money being supported. So um, the point of that being like I was surprised uh, thinking about this that like Zdarsky makes him much more like I am a very Catholic man, sir, and that is killing me inside because I would like to do murder. Um, but Smith's is like I could do a murder or two because I've forgotten what Catholicism is about, uh, which only becomes problematic because Kevin Smith has not forgotten what Catholicism is about and cannot uh, let it go. Uh, see Dogma, which came out not far away from this uh, Daredevil run. Um, so, you know, thinking about it, I I really resonated with the Zdarsky run, and that is the first time that I have seen the depiction of Matt as the guardian of Hell's Kitchen in a way that started to vibe with me. But it only kind of starts after he gets out of jail, Mary become goes back to being Mary, and then Devil's Reign starts. It only really starts when the whole city, and then in particular Hell's Kitchen, is in dire peril. Uh, and he and Wilson kind of don't agree, but like both sort of agree that like there is a higher mission here they don't agree on what to do but anyway the long and short of that being uh my matt i think is the guy with the mission i think that's that's and you know what worked about the red fist saga as an idea was it was the mission goes on to be uh a a prophetic one and one that might be able to jive with his very strong personal beliefs uh that might that he might be able to reconcile the kind of mystic world of marvel uh and the complex pantheon of marvel gods and demons with his own faith uh and yeah i mean i think that really is to me that he is the guy with the mission i think that's my daredevil i think final answer <laughs> Uh, go. Do you want to frame it for me? You know that was going to be my whole thing. You know, <clears throat> Kevo, you've been a a sideline person for Daredevil for so long. What's your Daredevil? Uh I mean, you know, I don't have as much comic experience. You gave me some to read at the beginning of our relationship, but uh, I mostly hear about everything that's going on uh, through you. So my experience is mostly, um, what's Hottie's name? Charlie Cox. And so I guess that's mostly who the Matt that I mostly know and mostly vibe with. Um, and I really liked him on She-Hulk. And I know that's such a controversial answer, but I love seeing light, fun, still kick-ass Matt. Um, you know, because it's about the peaks and valleys and we haven't really gotten a lot of fun peaks from Netflix, Matt, yet. 
so that was really nice to see, especially if we are going to see him be torn down and born again. I'm really intrigued to see how that version of the character is going to shape up after so much time away from Netflix, after this brief uh, appearance on She-Hulk. What is this version of the character going to be like after after all this, after how much more history there has been added to the character with uh, Elektra and everything that's happened in the past few years? I really wonder how that's going to influence the uh, live-action adaptation of the character, because it should. Well, and I love that you brought up She-Hulk, because uh, Matt does kind of fuck around a lot. Uh, and so, you know, like even in the Zdarsky run, uh, he has like a, just a random like hookup friend. Dare, uh, Electra comes back. There's always a vibe with Mary when she's in the mix. Um, and so like the idea that he would meet another lawyer and another superhero and, you know, have a little fling uh, in, you know, in California i think is totally true to the character uh and i hope will work for the future of the the live action character but also just really kind of makes me wish that we were seeing some reverberations of that in uh this new run which it starts yeah very grave it starts very serious this is very serious business happening in volume eight and that's great you know i love serious business but uh matt and jen walters having some silly fun trying to do superhero hijinks and then you know going home and making sweet love is also very fun absolutely So, you know, we can't just talk about who our Daredevil is. You know, that would be too easy. We need to bring in somebody who came in with a pair of eyes so unique for me. You know, when I talk about Daredevil, my Daredevil starts with comics. And so many of my friends that discuss comics started with the comic universe. But uh, our very own Tori Sheehan, one half the Billy Club, uh, she started with the TV show. And so that doesn't make her opinion any less terrific. In fact, it really spins what the comics are into a new light. So uh, I would like to do nothing more than invite the one and only Tori up to the plate so that she can pitch us who her Daredevil is. Hello, hello. How are you? I, I'm straight off of uh, the, the work commute. Um, who is my daredevil, you ask? Um, I am a... I, I like my Matt when he's happy and a little slutty and joking around and things like that. So um, I it really kind of enjoyed him on She-Hulk. I think as we covered a lot on our Billy Club episode, I thought he was just absolutely fantastic. And I just I just want happy Matt. And I feel like uh it's gonna be a while to see him with this new with this new number one. But maybe, maybe fingers crossed. I gave the same answer, Tori. We yeah. love happy slutty Matt because you can't tear him down if you don't build him up. Exactly, exactly. And I feel like he's got quite a 
quite a road ahead of him because I actually I have a lot of thoughts, a lot of literary thoughts on what uh, on on what the new our new writer is doing with what Zadarsky set up. So I'm sure we'll get into it. So I'm going to use that as an opportunity to uh, I'm not trying to put my uh, I put my slides back up. Kevy, can you make the slides go back? <laughs> so um, I'm so excited. <laughs> He's the producer. He's got the brains. So I'm really excited to talk about uh, Saladin Ahmed and Aaron Cooter's Daredevil number one. This is the third Daredevil number one in five years, like I said. Now, I really want to like this issue. Aaron Cooter is responsible for my favorite Avengers book of the last 20 years, Avengers Forever. The guy uh, draws the sexiest Tony Stark in history, who's actually also the sexiest Ant-Man in history. A uh, real interesting little character bit that we really, really love this character on this show. Uh, but this was not my number one. I really liked this issue. I really like what they're doing. Um, and Aaron Cooter can make anything really terrifying. But, uh, okay. Daredevil 14 ends with Daredevil waking up as a priest and Elektra continuing on in the role of Daredevil. The world of Daredevil actually just kind of continues without him. Mary and Wilson are two of the most important members of the X-Men right now. I don't understand how TK got everything he wanted in the world. But, with <laughs> But you know I didn't because immediately what happened is Emma and Tony are now allied against Wilson. Which is not what I wanted either. But. No, I really I wanted I wanted him to be to be a bro. Uh, but anyway, did you see it going differently though? Tony doesn't like other rich, smart people around uh, him. Okay. When I when I sorry, well, you I just want to say Tony Tony doesn't like other guys with muscles. Yeah, but uh, he would, and I'm telling you this. I mean this right now. I'm saying this to you very seriously. A conversation between Tony and Wilson would have them sitting across the table from one another, and Wilson would say. You know, I'm not threatened by elitist educations and fathers with money. And Tony would say back, yeah, well, you know, I'm not threatened by fat thugs who don't know how to build themselves anything. So I'm not worried about this. Are you? And like, it would be that level of they just don't even register each other. So like, it doesn't matter. They shouldn't be allied against. No one should be against each other in that situation. They're just not on the same I That's feel just... like they're the dude version of Deanne Carroll and uh, Joan Collins having the champagne is burned well, conversation and they're, from they're Dynasty. Al- and they're also like the spouses of the people who are supposed to be there. Right. Yeah, exactly. This for the, the actual cool people we asked for. Yeah. Um, that's 100% the case. I so yeah. anybody else talk about this. I'm going to give it I'm, right now. I'm giving it a B. Yeah, I'm giving. Well, this I'm going time. back. I'm going back for a second because I just want to oh. say my initial prediction after uh, the before Devil's Reign started and the last Zdarsky run ended, because that ends with Wilson and Mary literally getting in a boat and sailing out of Manhattan because Wilson has lost. Or sorry, Devil's Reign ends with that um, because Wilson has lost uh, control of New York. 
uh, Luke Cage is going to be mayor and they've got to go. So they get in a boat and they sail away. Where the hell else would they possibly go but the island where Mary has citizenship? And as a result of that, they're probably not going to deny her husband when they have allowed Celine, the ancient vampire who has slaughtered millions of people, uh, to just hang out. Like, by comparison, but Wilson hold on. is a... I... But Wilson has so much blood on his hands, he really does match up to the mythic folk. Really, the I, amount of blood I, on Wilson's hands. He is he is Celine levels of a murderer. I buy it, but I'm saying, like, if the rule is that Kyle Jinnadu can be there and Celine can be there, then, then, you know, Wilson Fisk is fine. If Mary's allowed and husbands are, like, human husbands are allowed, then Mary's okay. So I thought they would Rights go... Rights are not just for the gays on Krakoa, I understand. It, Exactly. So I thought they would go. And I sort of think no matter how you slice it, Wilson is a better person than Sebastian Shaw, who is uh, the other rich white dude who's always trying to do seats of power stuff with the X-Men. So my thinking was this would happen. Mary would, of course, immediately become an X-Man and be the best X-Man. And Wilson would become like the better person to have doing your financial stuff and like being a marauder uh with the x-men like helping them because like back when i'm making this prediction the marauders are like um they're doing like uh like property crimes they're doing like property theft crimes and trying to like ship stuff across borders they're not supposed to go to which is like who better than wilson fisk and then emma is just like don't step out of line because i'll kill you and then that's the end of it i really thought that's where it would go so that we had Fall of X, that Mary is kind of an X-Man by default because of the group that she's with in, uh, is it Valheim, Vanheim? Um, Vanheim, yeah. Vanheim, thank you. Which just sounds like a place in Los Angeles, so I don't know. Uh, but um, so she's doing that. But then so Wilson escapes immediately with Emma and then they sign over control of the Hellfire Club to him. And they're like, Emma's like, and we will be partners. And like, we're, I got you from afar. And then weirdly, just immediately in Iron Man, it's like, no, Wilson sucks. We're going to have to fight him. And that's where we are as of today. I haven't read uh, Iron Man 10, which came out yesterday yet. But that's we're literally in the middle of this story right now. And I'm hoping that it'll all just be like smoke and mirrors to make something work. But I really don't want to do uh, all the fun rich people versus Wilson Fisk thing. I want him to be a fun rich people. <laughs> Wilson Fisk is, you know, I if I feel really bad because like you're not supposed to find some villains attractive, right? Well, we know like, about your I thing with Wilson. I don't it's think fine. anyone has ever said that. But it's it's his conviction. Like, if you're asking me what I think is so sexy about Wilson, it's that Wilson will die to protect Manhattan. And, like, I think that's even sometimes why he thinks that Matt is such a funny little man, because Matt is so fucking concerned with three square blocks. What is wrong with him? Wilson has concerns about a city. And I just, uh, I want to say real quick, Kevo has an image I asked him to to bring up for me. Uh, this is really, I honest to God, this is the result of TK's love. Look at Mary in an X book being an X person and it's not any X book it's the magical X book that ties into the Thor mythos that's the only Thor mythos that TK really loves this is TK this is a Venn diagram of you saying 
the universe and make it by Torin Grunbuck. I did sort of manifest this. It really is sort of, it's tough living with the fact that it's coming out of an era I distinctly did not ask for. In fact, I maybe asked for the exact opposite of this era. But, you know, we take our small wins where we can get them. Uh, to the original question, I, anytime I'm critical of a book, I want to be so clear that, like, I couldn't write this book. Like, I, you know... Uh, I could not write this. I certainly could not draw this book. So my critiques are more just like what I wanted, what I was expecting, what I think works for a story. Uh, done for love. What what have I done for love? What has the love done for me lately? What has Daredevil done for me lately? Um, the love. It's not enough, said Hanson. Um, I, so... You know, the Zadarsky run ends and we see that Matt is a priest again and it just kind of over a very few pages and panels sets up exactly where the world is. And then this number one does the exact same thing over again, which I understand that the idea is some people might not have read the Zadarsky run and they're picking up here. Uh, I feel like that's a very thin slice of people, but let's assume it's not. Uh, let's assume it's a, a larger slice that I'm thinking. So we've got to rehash it. I feel like there are still more uh, enticing ways to have rehashed what happened. Or, you know, given the fact that we saw uh, the Zdarsky book do it in so few pages, I think it could have happened faster. And this book could have kind of been on to other stuff a little more quickly. Uh, I, I also, you know, I went on a really long tangent when Nico and I were talking about it, just talking about like, what are the time scales here? Because like, is it like, has it been months that he's been a priest or who else in the world is wondering about like what happened to Matt Murdock? Is that guy on the street vaguely looking like Matt Murdock? Are the other priests like, who is this guy? Nobody has ever heard of him. Or did God... Did Mike who, Murdoch get another chance too? There's that. Uh, did God, who apparently did all this, uh, you know, to thank Matt, rewrite reality in, in a similar way to how Mike kind of uh, exists because of, a, because of the Nornstones re rewriting reality? Um, did, you know, is there more going on to who he is and the problem is i like the idea that there is more going on but i think very clearly there will not be and it will just be marvel is ne never willing to confront the wretched order they have made of their time scales and how none of this can possibly work uh so you know these were the things i really found myself thinking about and concerned about and that's not really where i wanted my head to be at so it was a little bit uh, all over the place. Uh, I am so excited to get your thoughts on this title. The only thing I want to do is I want to bring our final player to the stage. Yeah. Uh, our our very own blind spot, if you will. Uh, it's a Daredevil Volume 5 reference. So um, if uh, our very own Echo, um, we're going to elevate him to Echo. Just We're promoting this guy through the ranks. Next thing you know, he's going to be Gladiator. Oh, man, nobody can make me cry like Mr. Potter can. Uh, let's bring Jonah to the stage. And uh, Jonah, 
I am so excited to have you uh, on with us because Daredevil means the world to me. You mean the world to me. And it's going to be a really fun time bringing those things together. So where's your name? Where can everybody find you? Well, by the association property, that must make me Daredevil. Hi, I'm Jonah Daredevil. You can find me over not in Hell's Kitchen, but over in a different city at P uh, and any social online at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. All right. Now, Jonah, you get to uh, listen to us talk about the scary, scary monster head that attached itself to Electra's body in what can only be described as the most Cronenbergian grotesque thing I've ever seen. Um, Princess Poppy's uh, talent show number? Uh, it's up there. Uh, so, Tori, talk to us. What was your relationship with Daredevil Volume 8, Number 1? And uh, you have a, a seven-fold theory that I think is only going to become more evident as we approach a specific legacy number. So, I actually kind of like this one. I think I was really swayed by page three and Matt looking so good in a cassock. Um, I have a lot of hot priest ex-Catholic feels, much like Matt. And so um, I liked it a lot. I actually would have wanted more time of Matt having no idea of who he is as Daredevil and having or like... I would have I would have liked more time with Matt not knowing that Electra's around. Matt not knowing uh, what he's done. Um, I would have maybe liked a little bit of maybe sleepwalking daredevil work. But, you know, that might be a step too far. Um, so I actually would have loved to have seen this as like a, like a two-parter, uh, actually, so that we could stretch that out a little more. Um, but I understand that we want to get back to the horn head swinging through. Um, I loved, uh, I loved the, this creepy old God, like taking over Electra, the way it draped itself behind her uh, and took over her face. I loved the Depeche mode video. Oh my God. It was so good. And I loved also, um, in particular, the the weird little Catholic in me actually like zoomed in really close uh, when he's walking into the his little uh, church for wayward wayward youths that they're somehow still handing to Catholic priests in 2023. Um, there's a there's a sign that has a a quote from the Bible in it, uh, and it's from First uh, John 4:18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now it could go one of two ways. Either one, someone figured out where the word fear was in the Bible and pulled the hottest quote they could from it, or two. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to have this has you know echoes and things that are going to be seen throughout a lot of this because i personally think that having gone through um the in that zadarsky set daredevil up to go through the inferno side of the defined comedy and um uh saladin ahmed is actually setting us up for the purgatorio part of it which is the the earthly side uh which is another uh look at the seven deadly sins as we go through um starting with sloth is a little weird um but we'll get them all as we go uh 
And then I think we're going to hit up to Paradiso. But uh, as Nico sent me today, we're heading up to the 666 number in just a couple of issues, which I'm very excited for. So hopefully we'll see something really cool. But I I like this. I have high hopes. Um, if they don't come to fruition, I will probably be less excited about this number one. But I thought the visuals were gorgeous. I thought it was an interesting take. I love the idea of is it I love the idea of Electra continuing to do Daredevil work even though Matt can't see her doing the work. So like she's uh actually like praying to an unseeing, unknowing God. And uh so that was that was that was interesting to like think about the idea of Electra and Faith. Uh, when it comes to these characters. Um, but yeah, like, I I had a good time with this, you know? I really enjoyed it. I also just want to point out that we are living in the grand age of Electra. This is the day and age of the Electric Nacho. We mm-hmm. have uh, Electra had Woman Without Fear. We had Electra 100. We had, uh, we all have the upcoming Daredevil Gang War, which is, okay, that's the only thing that I just really want to be like, no matter what's going on in the pages of Daredevil, I know that Elektra is going to still be Daredevil up through like April of 2024 because that's when Gang War is solicited through. And thanks to the fact that, you know, Green Lantern rules. You can have multiple people with the same code name and it doesn't actually impact the quality of the book. She's the Daredevil that stars in Daredevil Gang War. And we don't need to worry about that. It's pronounced Yangam War. Um, no, I'm pretty sure that was used to be the most popular video on YouTube for a little while. It was that crazy K-pop song where people were dancing to it. Yeah. Nico, I'm shocked in this list that you did not include Black, White, and Blood. I was actually just about to bring that up. Oh, there she is. <laughs> I only I only I only mention it because uh it has the um the precursor story to the one from uh Electra Eleven that we love so 100. much. Hundred. Sorry, why did I say eleven? Oh, yes, I don't know, but Electra Eleven is my new favorite issue of all time. I know it's really <laughs> special good. anniversary issue number eleven. Woohoo! <laughs> Electra Eleven Eleven, make a wish. She'll do it. Oh. Murder. <laughs> Murder. Just a wish for that. So. This is the most religious Daredevil number one in a while. Uh, I know that Seven had a lot of religious stuff in it. I'm not here to debate the... What was Goldie? I can't... I can't... I can't... I can't. Are we not going to get a full answer on Goldie? We don't think he's... I I think if we're going all the way to Paradiso, I think Goldie's coming back. But that's a a personal thing. I mean, that's... I'm here for it. Well, I feel like... I would love to see that be the case. But I'm concerned we will never get an answer on Goldie. Yeah, me now, too. If you take the Goldie out of Volume 7, there hasn't been an overtly religious Daredevil number one in many ways since... Oh, wait, that's not the one. Hold on. Give me a minute, guys. I have to navigate there manually. He there have been so, so many books. There's so many issues. So many issues. Even you. <laughs> so... Back in the pages of Daredevil Volume 2, number wow. one, August of 1998, 
there was a real weird story involving a baby and uh my precious uh natasha you know the first nachos in his life uh nachos romanov which is a uh, russian nachos they're served with a splash of vodka so i'm really excited to talk about the arc that came out here now this is going to consist of daredevil uh one through eight zero and one half for those who are wondering how comics have non-existent numbers like the theory of zero uh which you know they didn't even teach zero as a number to women and minorities until the 1700s because they were afraid it would drive them insane look at comics being so progressive um we we say with our first our writer of color now right truly i am I'm so confused by how <laughs> comics came up with deformed numbering before they came up with multicultural creative teams. <laughs> but, you know. So Kevin Smith, hey, you know what? I actually want to say Joe Quesada really is uh, a Latin man. And, you know, all jokes aside and all, you know, being funny about Joey Q that I love to do uh, as another way passing Latin man. I really think it's uh, of note that he was editor in chief and uh, his successor was Axel Alonso another mixed race latin man so definitely of note but uh this volume gosh darn it i remember being uh quite literally 12 years old and getting each one of these the wednesday they would come out my dad bringing them home for me uh from midtown comics and i remember getting my grubby little paws on the variant of volume two number two back when they did second issue uh, variant because famously first issue would sell really well because it's number one no one would buy number two and if it was good everyone would start buying number three they figured if they did a really rare variant for the second one they could get stores to order more of the second one so for about 10 years there's a lot of second issue variants guys i remember this coming out and like running to my dad and being like dad what do you mean that natasha romanov the black widow used to be daredevil and my dad being like i don't know i started reading in like like, oh, wait. Yeah, I guess. I guess they dated. That was around when she dated Iron Man and Hercules. Huh. You know, maybe there didn't used to be enough women in the Marvel Universe. And that is why one woman dated every single superhero, uh, my dad, in 1998. So I watched this come out, and the whole world thinks this was the greatest thing that ever happened to Daredevil. And I watched by the time bendis started on issue 16 three years later because for two years only eight issues came out uh, thanks to david mack's very unique painter process it took him a really long time echo issues 9 to uh, 16 oh 9 to 15 of daredevil took two years to come out it's it's a very poor timing thing because the film came out in that time as well so it was an unfortunate thing. But of course, it's one of the most legendary stories in the history of Daredevil, so you can't complain. Um, I watched this come out at the time, and then I watched the whole world call it problematic when the next major writer started. And then I watched it enter into legendary status. Like at some point we said, oh, but, you know, it's 2008, and now Ed Brubaker's on the title. So, you know... That Kevin Smith run, that's like an old run. That's like back when uh, Frank Miller was on the book. Fucking hell! Frank Miller was on the book in 1977! <laughs> it is not the same! Um, I watched this go from A-pluses every month in Wizard 
to a book that maybe we agree should be left in the past, like just randomly giving uh, Karen AIDS. Can I I ask a question about this? (laughs) I have have to ask. Yeah. This is going to sound so insensitive. Did she actually have AIDS or did Mysterio make her think she had AIDS? Okay. Really fantastic question. Because he doesn't know. Karen... Karen was a an unfortunate victim of parable storytelling. And in 1986, Frank Miller had Karen Page, who had not appeared in nine years, be revealed to have failed as an actress and had to have turned to adult films and became a heroin addict. And she was so desperate for a fix, she sold Daredevil's identity for a fix. And it trickled all the way up to Kingpin. And God damn it, the look of determination in his eyes in that panel is like literally one of the greatest things in the entire history of comics. And she was an intravenous drug user who had sex before condom laws in California. She is a representative of millions of women who were used and thrown aside. So does Karen Page have AIDS? It's probably an illusion from Mysterio. But did too many women get forgotten? And does Karen have to bear the burden of being so many forgotten women in comics because we just don't make the room for them? Yeah. So does Karen have AIDS? Probably not. But should we always remember that real Karens do? Yes. I mean, I think that's a really good way to put it. But, you know, they do... For one thing, I like the first thing I said to Nico in my last reread was I don't think Kevin Smith understands how HIV and AIDS work <laughs> or at least doesn't understand how to use the language uh, because uh, but then, you know, I, 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 when I like upon further uh, dissection, it is also that like she was routinely screened for HIV and never was positive and then randomly was, which I think is medically impossible uh actually have a false positive for up to 10 years if you have type 1 hiv and you're using um tests designed before the rapid test system in 2006 okay so not not impossible possible but the kind of thing where they're making an example out of this woman in a way they would never make an example out of a man right um and it's just like this really stuck me as having all of the hallmarks of the problems with Kevin Smith properties and ideas that we all realized. And that's this the- chasing baby. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, people thought chasing Amy was just this brilliant movie when it came out and it just had this progressive view on sexuality and because Holden was kind of a fucking idiot it was totally okay that like this portrayal of a very confident lesbian woman uh deciding that she just can't resist Ben Affleck and who knows what's going on uh really just kind of did an injustice to Joey Lauren Adams as an actor to kind of Kevin Smith's understanding of the queer community and spaces that he's not a part of uh and that like just kind of became his trademark and I feel like it trickles all the way up to this run where there's just so many things that I'm just like uh you know there's a point where somebody's like uh 
are you saying I'm where Matt says like are you asking if I'm a misogynist and it's like misogyny is a binary state to Kevin Smith in 1998 where people can't you know engage in misogyny there's a misogyny switch Matt was turning it on while the cut while the drugs were in him and then he right. turned it off and he was drinking his respect women juice after right. Aaron died done like it's end Tori, of story Tori, didn't that make you feel respected and beautiful <laughs> please Tori. Uh, sorry i i'm realizing i don't know enough about chasing amy to to not be currently oh, very fine. upset yeah chasing um, amy is a rough watch <laughs> as somebody upset. who like i like who knew i was gay and i was like mm, this has got some points i also love comic books <laughs> i am now really appalled that i smiled and nodded along with that movie for so long but continue um I I think that this suffers from the misogyny switch that was happening all over the world in the 90s, which was as long as you weren't out here beating women or calling them horrible names and pinching things like you were you were a feminist. Congratulations. And there was no like deeper understanding of it. And yep. so I, I like think for- Billie Jean King as much as I like John McEnroe. So I'm a feminist. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm so glad that Sarah from HR got that promotion. I'm a feminist. Uh, so for me, this was just sort of all kind of tacked onto the, I was very deeply concerned about Matt for the first, you know, several issues of this and was actually quite happy when it was revealed that it was just poison because I was like, I don't know what happened to Matt between the maybe 50 issues that I was at before this point. <laughs> that I'd read and I was like I think I don't think he's good you guys <laughs> like it was terrifying to watch Matt in this and so his misogyny was just another thing where I was like I thought uh, that didn't happen outside of Ed Brubaker so I was very very confused today so this was my first ever reading of this uh, this volume and I had no idea about anything about what was going on in here at all. The only thing I knew at this point in comics is that Karen Page is dead. And when she was killed, she hasn't been brought back. She's not allowed to be brought back. I knew she died at some point. Yes. I did not know that she died during this run. Same, same, same. This is I the same. did not realize this would be the run that would be responsible for Karen Page's death and continuation of her death where she is not back yet. For realsies. For realsies this time. For realsies. She's very actual dead now. (laughs) So I color me surprised when we have all these things going on. I kind of audibly gasped when she was like, I have AIDS. And it's like, (gasps) and she's like, and not visual AIDS. And I was like, (gasps) (laughs) I was like, what? What is going on? I will say something that I did enjoy about this. Guys, I'm sorry. Hold on. I'm having, I'm having the, I'm, ha- I'm, I'm, guys, 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 I'm sorry. Guys, guys, Colgit, Mithra of, of Man Without Fear was watching our show and has an answer for me about Goldie and posted it and tagged us. So I just needed to jump in with like literally the world's most famous daredevil <laughs> as an opinion. And I just need to share it. Um, Nico was watching a bit. I saw the bit about Goldie. Zadarsky said, yeah, I never wanted to make it explicit in the text, but once you start making those connections, it seems evident that Goldie has been a pawn of the wild the whole time. Like most false prophets, Goldie thought he was doing God's work, even when it created horrible results for people. 
The realization that he had on the mountain about the Book of the Fist really puts it all in a different light, especially after the reveals in Hell. But the problem is, I like, I love that. Uh, but then uh, the problem is that God shows up and gives uh, Matt a reward. So, like, it's just very tough to see. I, I, I get it. Um, this is why I think that this was cut short. Because I think that a couple more issues with the wild being able, like, a full issue of, like, the wild being able to be like, here are all the times I showed up. I know you're freaking out right now. I'm I'm plowing through it because we got a show to do. Uh, <laughs> uh, a couple, you know, that getting that episode that uh, Jasmine showing up in Angel and explaining to the gang how she was in charge of everything that made her born. You know that she was in charge of the beast coming to Earth and all that stuff. Uh, that kind of episode is kind of necessary to re-anchor when you reintroduce the element of an omnipotent being that has actually been pulling the strings and that we never got much of that from the Zadarsky run, that it was really one issue where somebody is like, by the way, the beast has a sister. Woo. I actually love the idea. Super into it, but just not enough time, man. Like really not enough time. Um, okay, I'm Jonah. I'm so sorry. That was, that was, that was getting tagged by like my fan idol. That was, that was just so special. I'm sorry. I did not mean to cut you off. That was a very special moment for me. I appreciate your forgiveness. Go ahead, Jonah. Well, uh, what kind of Catholic would I be if I didn't preach forgiveness? <laughs> what kind of talk about me behind my back? <laughs> As they say, kind of Staten boy. As they say at the beginning of this Quesada run, like. Uh, you know, you can forget all you want, but you will never forget. Never forget. Um, also, I, very quick, another very quick question before I continue on my uh, analysis of this run. Is she writing her letters in Braille? No, he can feel the raised ink of the oh, pen okay. with his special. Yeah. Okay. With, yeah. yeah. She even says, it's, it's really quick, but she says, I wonder if you'll be able to feel, you should get this when you're 75. I wonder if you'll be able to feel it. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. So, what I thought was interesting and fascinating about this run is that at least the first couple of issues make you believe, oh, this actually is a religious thing going on because you have no reason otherwise to believe that it's not. We have all this art about the angels. We have all this making it makes sense of like, oh, there is an actual religious thing going on. I'm a little more surprised, and maybe you can hand wave it and say it's because of the poison. Matt didn't go to Doctor Strange sooner as the person who is the master of the occult um i loved when matt was still being affected by the poison dr strange's look where he's this very just full dark figure uh and it just he has you know the cloak it's a really great look for him yeah that was a, a very specific look era for him um and then i really enjoyed however i feel like a lot of this book kind of goes off the rails and i say this even <laughs> with, without everything a book like this cannot be published today. Even let's, let's take away. Let's. I want to take away the most damning piece of uh, Karen getting AIDS. Taking that part out. <laughs> full blown like, AIDS. Full blown AIDS. Skip. <laughs> don't don't go to HIV. Uh, just skip. Go. Don't collect two hundred dollars. You skipped it. <laughs> yep. So, I Paul act up already. Kind of get. 
Mysterio being the mastermind behind this and the villain with the illusions, okay, that stuff I can buy, but the motivation feels haphazard. He was doing all of this because he just wants to fuck with Matt feels really weak. There isn't an actual reason for why Mysterio is doing any of this. Mysterio being upset by his terminal diagnosis of cancer, where he has a year left to live from, you know, all the special effects stuff that he was doing to his body, led to him to want to do this one last hurrah of messing with Matt? That seems weird. Why is it Matt? He even points out, they fought once? It's because Spider-Man is currently not Spider-Man. Yeah. It's because currently Ben Riley is subbing in for Spider-Man, and so Mysterio can't get his revenge on Peter Parker, so he's just gonna do it to Matt Murdock instead. Which is hilarious, because immediately at the end of all this, Spider-Man shows up in costume to hang out with Matt. Yeah, I actually, I texted Nico, and he didn't get back to me, because he's a very busy man. But I was like, oh, is Spider-Man not Peter Parker right now? And then we, like, moved on to other things. And I had no idea. And so when Peter Parker shows up at the end, I was like, oh, maybe Mysterio was just confused. It's really funny. Every time Ben Riley shows up and is like, I'll take the mantle, Peter's like, thank you, I really need this. And is like, takes a five minute break and immediately goes back to being Spider-Man without telling Ben Riley (laughs) and just pulls the rug out from under him. And it's like, everybody likes me better anyway, which is now why he is now in a limbo jail. And that's why he is Chasm. Yes, exactly. And that's why there's a hole in his heart, because he can't get back what he wants. But we're not talking about this clone. We're talking about somebody else who has clones. Mysterio. Well, I think Corey just fucking straight up bullseyed me in the chest. uh, Well, he was also in this issue. (laughs) Drive by. (laughs) I'm just saying, you're a busy man, and I have lots of questions. (laughs) I... I, Corey, you can always message me. I will answer your questions. (laughs) He's just as smart and way more handsome. And you could keep sending me cute stuff on Instagram like you do. <laughs> Tori sends me nice, cute things on Instagram. But this this that. series was not He's about nice, cute things. This was about Matt being tortured morally. And but... it's... I don't know if this torture is compelling. That's a very weird sentence to say that I don't think I've ever thought to say in real life. But it's not compelling torture. The motivation is haphazard. So the person doing the torturing... I don't know if I buy the reasoning. Matt, it's, there's also, okay. I'm also maybe a little bit miffed about this super secret poison that's completely undetectable by any and all kind of imagination. It's tasteless, it's odorless, it seeps into your skin and it affects you in these ways that are perfect for the narrative. And yeah, you can say that's the whole point of this, but I'm like, that. that I think you just described Catholicism. I mean,. I don't know. And then we have the entire thing with Matt's mother being a runaway nun. No, okay. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a pre-established issue. We know that. That's we a pre-established know. issue. I I don't let people say well, bad things about Maggie. The bigger thing they is that Maggie sometimes. The bigger problem is that Maggie sometimes is like a thirty-five-year-old milf. And sometimes she is a 90-year-old crone and never the twain shall meet. And sometimes, it's not Ty- and sometimes Typhoid Mary pretends to be his mother. It's There's a lot going on. There's well, a I feel ton like Matt going absolutely on. has a mommy kink. But that's yeah. less, of the, less of this point and more so. <laughs> I, 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 I
I uh I I all but just wanted Maggie to turn to Matt and say, What is it, you cunt face? Like <laughs> I was kinda just waiting for that moment to happen. It was yes. this volume I think suffers from being hashtag team too much. Mm-hmm. There's I think just a little bit too much actually going on, a little bit of too much problematic things that I'm like, eh, I I also don't know if I I am always down for a nice amount of cheesecake. However, the way that Natasha is kind of just a pawn in this entire story and the way that she's drawn, the way that she acts, she's fully there to kind of sexually service not only us, the readers, but Matt. And in a weird way, it obviously taking away a lot of her own agencies. Or is already covered in hives. <laughs> it, it's, it was just one of those things where I was like, I, I you can you can even make the gross argument this is a story through the lens of Matt. This is how Matt sees Natasha. And it's still gross, but you can understand it because Matt's being gross in this moment. I was just really uncomfortable by a lot of things. Also, not to diminish the strength of Daredevil, Natasha has a sash in training. She's not going down that easy. Am, am I wrong in thinking that? No, and so I will say I had the exact same thought. And I, this is the Kevin Smith being, you know, a feminist, like, because Natasha is like, if you ever strap me with a baby again, and I say, I think my maternal instincts kicked in, uh, I'll beat the shit out of you. And we're (laughs) we're supposed to think that, like, Kevin Smith is a good, like, female positive writer, because after Matt just completely doormats this woman, and she even leans into it, she makes one comment at the end being like, I'll fucking kill you if you do it again, and that's enough. That means we have established that, like, she's actually more powerful, and women rule, and men suck. Kevin Smith got it right. Yay, she's doing She's doing her Marissa Tomei impression. My biological clock is ticking! That was exactly what I thought. I am longing for Ivan to just be standing behind her and for Natasha to be like, Ivan, take this baby. And Ivan to be like, whatever you say, mommy. Whatever you say. That would be fucking amazing. Like, there, because there is a way to do it. Like, he had some really good banter and patter between them. And, like, she read him down a few times, and that was great. But it really, at the end of the day, functionally, he does say, be a woman about this and take the baby. She does. (laughs) She then says, that was actually okay. And then the only way he buys it back, because he knows that that's super fucking gross, is this sort of payoff line about how she won't let him do it again. Lest we forget, before he hands her the baby, she was fully ready to sleep with him. Yeah. Yeah. Now... Tori, you uh, you were live messaging me this like it was a drag race finale and somebody well, <laughs> was killing some butterflies. So my question for you is, uh, uh, what? How, how how are your feelings? Uh, I, I feel I feel like this is where Joss Whedon got his Age of Ultron Natasha characterization from, and it doesn't yep. make me happy. Yep. Um, I found her my mother's intuition kicked in. Her whole thing is just very. It, it it wasn't her. I if this was my first version of Natasha, I would not understand why she, everyone's calling her an assassin. Why everyone's calling her a great spy? Why everyone says she's the best of the best? None she's of that. She's basically nanny from Muppet Babies. She's no just, wonder why she couldn't lead the Avengers. Yeah. Oh. 
Oh, oh, and and him like choking her out and something, something woman. I was like, I was like, I like this was the issue where I mean he snapped her foot and I was like, Nico, I'm done. I'm done. But this isn't okay. He's got his it's just teeth and black and some little red horns and i'm just like i'm out i'm out this is not okay i i you told me you told me that punisher is is somewhere else but i feel like he's here and it's not okay uh i hated it i hated it violently i hated uh i hated that she's like saw your girlfriend in your bed and i didn't want to swing by with a baby on my hip and i was like can we not can we not? I'm also, fucking baby. I also love that Matt uh, doesn't change diapers. Yeah. <laughs> so yep. The gender of the baby is unknown until Natasha's like, yeah, it's a fucking girl. It's a girl. <laughs> but then the idea that Natasha, a sleeper agent trained assassin, knows how to change a diaper for any fucking reason is so insulting. Uh, you know, the smarter bit is for Natasha to be like, you idiot. Why would I, of all people, know how to change a diaper? I can't cook anything for myself. I can only kill people. Jelena, that is what I have been trained you? to do. You yeah. apparently do shelter work. You don't know how to change a fucking diaper. Nobody else has ever handed you a baby and been like, help me. I'm homeless. I have nothing. Have you actually been doing anything this whole time? And yeah, oh, like women know. Women know, <laughs> don't they? Just, they just her know. biological clock kicked in and she just knew what and to do with that baby. Her biological anymore there are four women in this series yeah okay yeah you've got the mother maggie you've got the wife karen you've got the slut that's natasha and then you've got the shrew and that would be miss sharp who i've never met before and i was wondering why they had a law firm with her but it's don't forget the fake lady who was fake who was a fake demon who jumped out the window <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah! After oh, she seduced right. Foggy like a harlot would. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that like, great portrayal. We have, a cup, we have a couple of sluts, and we actually yeah. do have another mother, the mother of the baby. Uh, but who is, a who is a child? We have a mother. Yep. yep, that's a 15 year old girl, and we have the who should be the most important person. And retroactively, if we'd known what was coming up in Marvel, Liz Osborne would have been the oh. fulcrum around which this entire story. Yeah. This would yeah. Liz's story. I'm actually really upset that Nico sprung this on me without actually saying to me, "Hey, you're only like 50 issues away from this point. If you start now, you can get to this point where you could just keep reading and be yeah. caught up." I did not I realize you were know, that close. I, I think I am based on the little ones that you were sending. It yeah. seems like I'm that close. Uh, she, I don't know who she is. She seems very important and so very, she, very important. She yeah. is the uh, daughter-in-law. Uh, she's a, yeah, she's a Spider-Man person. She is the daughter-in-law of the Green Goblin. Oh, she's an um, Osborn. Yes, yeah. she is. She's yeah. one of those. She's one of those Osborns, but she's married. She's married into the family right now. Her son has a symbiote. Uh, yeah. So Norman Os, the Green Goblin's grandson, uh -huh. has a symbiote. Uh -huh. Liz Osborn, her husband. Uh, remind me of the name. 
Harry. Thank you, Harry. Harry. Uh, Norman and Harry, right. Harry's dead. Harry is dead and had an affair with another woman, and Liz is raising both her own son and this other child as though he is her own, and doing a fucking bang-up job. Good for her. Yeah, every... Sorry, go ahead. Is she a goblin? Was that what I heard? She's about to be one. She she herself is is turning into one. No, the... Her biological son has a symbiote. Her yeah. adoptive son, a fair baby that she's raising, is also a goblin. Yeah, right. So well, they're, he, they're he's just... a hereditary goblin. Like it's fine. Yes. She's get... also the founder of Alchemex, which is going to end up being hugely, which is now hugely important to the Marvel universe. But it started as a uh, Spider-Man 2099 thing, and one I think one of the cooler things Marvel has ever done in their whole continuity is establish Alchemex in our time and sort of indicate that it will just fester into this horrible organization that you know. Thanks, in 2090... Liz. What's that? Thanks, Liz. Liz. Yeah. So that in 2099, it will be, you know, responsible for all of Spider-Man 2099's problems. So so Liz is a queen. I think it's unfortunate that she's not in this more. I mean, she exists to get cheated on. That's literally her purpose in the story. Yep. And life, unfortunately, it would seem. So, you know, when we talk about Daredevil, Guardian Devil, one through eight, This really was the point at which Daredevil came of age. The stories before this were jokes. People weren't really paying attention. It was really no focus. You know, in 1994, they reformatted Daredevil to be over the edge. And it was part of the dark, hardcore, mature readers imprint at Marvel. And by 1997, it's just one step above one of the kiddie Marvel Adventures books. And this was a master of adult storytelling saying Daredevil could come and meet up that high. Now, of course, it should be mentioned that this was the, you know, brainchild of Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti, who said, you know what, Marvel, if you give us the money, we will farm out some of the books you're having trouble with, like Daredevil, Inhumans, Punisher, and Black Widow. These titles, as the Marvel Knights line, would go on to give birth to things like the Max line. I truly believe this is a deeply problematic run, and it... If Kevin Smith, the man he is now, could retell it, would definitely retell it much stronger. But this story, for what it is, it is the thing that really grew Daredevil up. It's the thing that made people think of Daredevil as something more than like a silly little kid book. And for that reason, you know, in a post-Miller, in a post-Andesenti era, where Daredevil became sort of a remnant of, oh, comics used to be cool in the 80s, but this is the 90s, and we only have room for hardcore. This is a decent middle ground on hardcore. I remember watching it become problematic at the time. I look back and I see how it is problematic now, but I did just get my hands on that beautiful gallery edition they did, and that has one half and one through eight. Uh, the Omnibus Edition, Marvel Knights by Joe Quesada, has the Zero Edition. When I think about what this run did for Daredevil, it brought Daredevil to a modern sense of storytelling. That's for better or for worse. You know, Buffy the movie was a joke, but Buffy the TV show is a critically lauded idea. 
I don't know that Buffy the movie should be a joke with some of the ideas in it being powerful, palpable, and gave birth to the series. But, likewise, the exchange here is that the stories that led to Kevin Smith being able to tell Guardian Devil were sort of treated like the same joke Buffy the movie was by virtue of their era and the sort of energy that went into that storytelling. Despite its flaws, Guardian Devil is the sort of evolution that Hoxpox represents for the X-Men. I would love to get your guys' take on this work. Do you see its revolutionary value in that it killed Karen Page, better or worse, that changed Daredevil canon forever? How do you guys feel about Guardian Devil 25 years out in a Marvel universe that only knows the Guardian Devil version of Daredevil? To me, I think it it sets Daredevil up to say there is no going backwards from this. There is no resetting from this. By taking out Karen Page, you are effectively saying anything before this is the past. Karen Page is a huge thing for for Matt Murdock. Um, to do this to her in a... I was talking with Nico about how similar uh, to the Gwen Stacy because they reference it as well. Um, Karen was in it for 35 years. And after this point, she is brought up as an asterisk in things. She's not uh, so formative that we think we're going to get a version of Karen Page again. Although maybe we will. Who knows? But I Karen think- Devil. Like Spider-Gwen, I'm here for Karen Devil. <laughs> this is Electra's worst nightmare is really what it is. And it's actually why if if they do do the full Paradiso and get up there, I don't think Electra is Beatrice. I think it's uh I think it's Karen because she's already dead. But you never know. Um I think uh it it definitely forces daredevil to be a lot darker we're murdering babies we're um we're breaking our friends legs um we're playing around with magic we're learning that matt hates magic like we have a lot of things that are going to um keep going from this point that have echoes of what came before but it is very much a okay the buck stops here you don't have to go further back than this if you don't want to. Yeah, I mean, and that was something that Nico and I were talking about. Like, this really sets up a a new status quo for Daredevil in terms of, like, also just who Matt is as a person. This shatters him as a person, and that sets up a life trajectory for him going forward in multiple stories, like uh, Shadowlands, uh, you know, Daredevil becoming Kingpin, um, so it sets up a new emotional basis for Matt. And I really respect that. Uh, I'm really, I, I, every 10 years we look back on the 10 years previous and are shocked at how much more progressive we are. Uh, but then, you know, we look 20 years previous and we're just absolutely appalled that we ever give ourselves permission to think that we're done doing the work. For as terrible as this Kevin Smith run is, by 2008, things are 
significantly better for Matt as a character and for how writers are behaving. Uh, Ten years after that, we are starting to see things like Elektra being Daredevil. Unfortunately, we're still not seeing things like women writing Daredevil, uh, which really needs to change. But we are seeing more and more phenomenal women writers at Marvel, uh, queer and non-binary writers. So, like, things pick up. But now we are more than 20 years looking back on this. And even though it did do... It laid the foundation for how Matt would continue to graduate and continue to sort of represent what I think everybody has always said he does represent. It still falls really flat that this is the bedrock that we kind of have to base these things off of. He's just so insufferably like the writer's analog of the writer being proud of himself for having learned a thing or two about how to treat women uh but my real like the real thing it gets me thinking about is now that we're on to this new run with chip zadarsky taking so many steps towards something that felt like a definitive new direction for the character but i think also kind of ended before it began i'm just curious if we are in the midst of a of a new trajectory and status quo for Daredevil that started with the Zadarsky run, or if the Zadarsky run ended what started with Kevin Smith, and we now need the Solid and Ahmed run or whatever comes after it to take us to the next place we need to go to sort of establish the next bedrock by which Matt can really build himself up into the character he's going to be going forward for a while. So what, from what I'm gathering, a lot of what this volume really does is it swings the pendulum of Daredevil being a kid to, I'm not a kid anymore, I'm a bad boy, I can be an adult. And I personally think it maybe swung the pendulum just a little too far, even if it gets us to a place where Daredevil can be taken a little bit more seriously, as well as tackle different adult themes. However, the flagrant use of serious things and the way that a lot of these characters are treated i don't know if i can really call this favorable or encourageable to read it was a little hard to get through and it felt a little for lack of a better way to phrase it self-righteous it it really kind of bears repeating that like i think my major issue with these issues is the reason for all this happening isn't satisfying so i don't know if i like that this is this forced character growth for matt it doesn't feel like a narrative success that matt has to go through all this because somebody just happened to be bored and the original person he wanted to do it to he couldn't find i it's it's unsatisfying to me and while yes there are some great things that can maybe come about it i i i, I don't know how to tori put it best there's no woman that comes off great in this book like and runs do have to exist on their own too like they we can recognize what they do for the future but they also have to exist as the you know in this case let's just call it the eight issues that it is it obviously continues after that but if this were written today this eight issues would end and we would start a new volume 
after this. So, you know, this this Kevin Smith run, these eight issues, plus the, you know, the half and the zero, they really have to function on their own as well as, you know, what the work that we do to recognize how they contribute to something overall. And Jonah, I think your point is ultimately, and I agree with it, that they just really don't for a lot of reasons. Like, even if this is just a one-off story idea that's fine, it's kind of so silly and offensive at times that it's just really difficult to turn the blinders on stuff like what it's going to set up for the future uh, if we want to kind of take that moment to look at it for just what it is and not what it's connected to. Uh, absolutely. And I think my last point of this is unless you're a fan of Daredevil before this, reading this as... Uh, I, it's not my first Daredevil. I've actually been reading um, the more recent Daredevil on Echo, which I've been having a great time reading. But Matt does not come off anywhere near like a hero. Matt, and you can part of that say it's because of the drugs and the secret toxin that he was infected with. And sure, that buys part of the story. But none of this makes me want to root for Matt. This deeply tragic thing because this is a tragedy this entire story is just a tragedy no no comedy of errors no i not even dante's inferno which you know i guess is what they're currently referencing it is severely tragic and i at least taking it out of context the issue after mysterio kablams himself and we're getting Karen's letter. I did find myself tearing up because it is objectively a very sad thing to think about that someone's reading this letter and what she's writing about. But how are you expected to root for Matt throughout this entire volume? What about this makes you look at it and be like, damn, I'm a fan of that guy. I it really, I, I, this doesn't feel like Matt. It doesn't feel like Daredevil. And what's crazy is this really was the birth of so many fans. This led into the David Mack run, which led into the Bendis, to the Brubaker. Eh, Diggle and Shadowland lost a lot of people. But Wade was one of the highest points of the series' success. The Soul run had its uh, positives and negatives. But, you know, then you wound up right in the heart of the Zadarsky run. There's only been, like, literally, that's a point. This ends in... 1999 since 1999 it's 2023 now since 1999 there has been the mac run the bendis run the brubaker run the diggle run the wade run the sewell run the zadarsky run there have been seven main writers in 25 years and that's the thing. It's it's that there have been seven writers because uh, seven volumes actually does seem like a lot. But when you chop it down to seven specific visions for a story that uh, a particular, you know, and you're talking about big names here, people who don't just like show up and write, you know, a series of monster of the month adventures with the character they're really going to plot something big and overarching we saw it with Zdarsky. we know it with the wade run um it does come down to just people making major statements about matt one after the other and because he's a one dude they do become pretty major like with the x-men it's multiple teams multiple characters an enormous swath of stuff so like it's it's only been a few times that, you know, we had uh, 
you know, after the 90s, we had the decimation, the kind of ending of the decimation, which was like a really soft reboot. And then Krakoa, like those are our eras. We haven't really had much else. Uh, but individual, many individual writers have come and told stories about like what the new mutants are up to or what X Factor is up to. And then, you know, that corporate X Factor team, tons of X-Men teams, but Matt's just one guy. So seven people really stopping and taking a chip at his, who he is and what his world means kind of has a huge effect on him. I would love to use this use this time to get everybody's final thoughts on what we've talked about today. You know, Kevo, for you, it was mostly uh, sort of like a, a viewing on the sidelines kind of thing. But I would love to get everybody's final thoughts on Daredevil Volume 2 and 8 if you were reading it and where everybody can find you. Kevo, I'd love to start with you for your final thoughts. But of course, we're going to save your sign off for a little bit later. So, Kevo, what are your final thoughts on what you've heard about Daredevil this uh, two hours? Uh, he is a character who has gone through a lot of history and a lot of cycles. I think the most recent run has been some of the most interesting stuff that I've heard coming out of Daredevil in a really long time. But the fear with modern comics is always the dreaded reset and... A lot of the great work that was just done with the character, perhaps being uh, reformatted down to the roots of Daredevil. But I think one of the things that was best illustrated by this episode, as I pointed out earlier, uh, was just how varied his history is, how late in the game so many things we associate with Daredevil uh, came into being. And so I really think it's important to keep the character evolving. And I think keeping a lot of the growth that we've seen from the character and carrying it forward would be really interesting. So I really hope to see some positive change for Daredevil going forward and uh, some really cool evolution for the character, hopefully. Jonah, I know you are the least versed in Daredevil, but certainly that does not make your opinion the least valuable. As somebody who's come to Daredevil in your own way, you represent the modern fan who discovered Daredevil as part of the bigger Marvel Universe. Now, I know you didn't focus much on issues from later volumes for this episode. You really put your time in on reading actually 12 issues of Volume 2, taking a look at some of the Echo material that would follow by David Mack. What, is you, what are you walking away with this? You know, what is, your, what is the big lesson you're walking away from this reading experience with? How do you feel about Daredevil? And is it any different than before you read this 12 issues you read? Well, one, Matt is a man whore. Two, you said it to me before, but it was something I was trying to pay attention to, especially in something that is a little bit older. Daredevil often is drawn in a way that is similar to how men who draw cheesecakey women are drawn. I mean, the cover that you had up of volume two, it was a very feminine pose in a way that, like, if you didn't know better, you might assume that the character of Daredevil was a woman. And it is one of those things where I, I, I look at that and I'm like, oh, that's a woman doing rhythm, rhythm gymnastics. Like, it is a very fascinating trait that Matt has as a comic book character. Overall... I don't know if this is the kind of volume of what I read would be the 
volume you'd want to introduce somebody if you're a fan of Daredevil to get them into Daredevil. But I yeah, understand. That's a go-go boy. I just want to make your point. That is a go-go boy. That is a go-go boy. I, the, the boot, everything. I don't know if that volume is the best volume to hand somebody to become a fan of Daredevil, but I can also understand the impact that it would later have in letting Daredevil find success and allow these other writers to find opportunities to bring life to this character that might have not have happened had the story not happened. It's a weird catch-22 where I can respect what came after, but man, this is one of those things where this does not read well in the year of 2023, and I don't think it'll read well in the year of 2028, and I really don't think it'll read well in the year of 2038. Now, Jonah, where can everybody find you if they want to get more incredible opinions? And I mean that, like, you know, genuinely, I really appreciate what you're coming to the table with. If they want more incredible opinions like that, where can they find you other than just on this show, Thursdays or Wednesdays, Saturdays and Sundays? Oh, this is a great quick reminder. Smash that like button. Hit that subscribe button while you're at it. Uh, but if you want to follow me, you can follow me over on any social at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. We can't wait to have you back. Thanks so much for being with us. And we love all of your opinions on the Crimson Crusader. Yay! Now, Tori... You know, you helped me launch this show with the Billy Club. And, you know, when you speak on Daredevil, I listen. Why? Because the Internet has not made it a safe place for women to come and share their opinions on Daredevil. And there's not enough women with opinions on Daredevil helping to shape the fandom like you do simply by putting your thoughts out there. Now, I know this is a little bit ahead of where you are in your reading and also, you know, current, which is something I kind of thought you'd never be. How do you feel about comparing 98's Daredevil number one to 23's Daredevil number one and the six-volume span that that has to represent between? I, uh, I, I think that it's... They're both kind of doing very similar things, um, but in very different ways. 1998 still has a lot of words on the page that uh, 2023 does not have. Uh, we tell the entirety of what happened to Matt in the previous volume on like the bottom two thirds of a panel of Electra, that gorgeous splash of him fighting his way out of hell. I think um, we're able to do it tighter now, but I think that the i think the the thing that this number 1 has that the smith and casada number 1 has compared to the the newest number 1 is that this was the first reboot that they did and i think that that is also something that we should uh kind of be thinking about in the whole idea of daredevil because i presume before this point other books had Full reboots, full retitles, full everything. Nearly every book in the entire Marvel Universe had gotten a reboot just two years earlier. So this is 34 years down the line, uh, 35 years down the line, and Daredevil finally gets a reboot. Does that mean that now Daredevil is going is being considered like, okay, we're making good money on this. Let's make great money on this. Is it that they're like, we have to, we have to start to snip somewhere because at this point, Karen, you know, when they were doing the, uh, 
the panels for for the one half when they're like and karen and matt were in love you turn the page and all of a sudden it's 1963 with her hair so like there comes a point where you do have to switch things up or else matt who also looks oddly old in these in this uh art um he just starts to be 70 years old because he has to be he can't he can't not be and so I yeah. think that it's definitely something that I should keep in mind. I think that they're they're both doing the number one thing, but I feel like the most recent number one, the volume eight number one, isn't as concerned about being a reboot. It's more like the same previously on Daredevil that you get kind of any time there's a slight arc shift, no matter what who's in charge. And so I'm not, um, I, I don't feel as much of the uh, ground shaking, earth swelling. We have to mention Batlin Jack. We have to mention uh, Typhoid Mary. We have to mention this, 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 the brownstone. Let's bring up the brownstone. When's the last time we were there? Um, kind of stuff. So I bought you the brownstone. I had so much money. No, he owns the, he owns the property. She has the, she's going to, yeah. it, it was actually really nice it is, it is. that is that is a scene like so tori i want to thank you so much for being a part of this amazing episode with us your contributions to the billy club made it what it is and that's why we're so excited to launch a new season a little bit later on this year we're gonna have an incredible time and until then where can everybody find you on the interwebs well, you can find me uh, on, on all of my socials at SM Tori. That's Tori with an I. We got rid of the other one by X. Um, but you can also find me on the Billy Club. You can find me here. You can find us uh, wherever you listen to your podcast because now we're putting out Billy Club episodes on the podcast. And I highly recommend listening to those um, because, uh, frankly, anytime we drop one, it is extremely relevant to what is going on in Daredevil right now. Freakishly prescient a minute later. Absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> Like, like I'm listening because I listen to us because I'm vain, and uh, we're just like. So there was a series in 1998 by Smith and Casada that really has a lot to do with the blah 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 blah. And then I'm just like, well, I'm reading this right now. What's going on? <laughs> I so. cannot wait to start filming those Billy clubs again real soon and get them out to you guys. They are such a pleasure. And until we do, Tori, thank you so much for all of your contributions here on Exes for Podcast. Thank you guys. Thank you for having me. It's always so much fun. It's always the best to have you. Thank you so much. Now, oh, <laughs> everybody's trying to do the production stuff together. Okay, Kevo, where can everybody find you on the interweb and then kick it to uh, TK like always? But first, I just want to say, hey, taste tea cake. Thanks for chilling. Thanks for tuning. Thanks for being part of our show. Uh, it's always so great to have fans. We love you. We love your contributions. And it's always great to hear from you, even if yeah, just to thanks, say Tom. thanks for being here. Uh, I am your producer, Kevo, and you can find me uh, mostly producing, but you can also find me on the interwebs at Kevo Really. That's K E V O R E L L Y. Uh, TK, where can the folks don't find you? You can find me at TK Elemental. What? What? You have to answer the question. Oh, that was so long ago. 
but it's still the answer that it's everybody's waiting for. God, it's like, is Donna Martin going to graduate? It's what we're waiting for. Uh, no, that well, was our 1993 broadcast. That's not this one. What was yeah, the question? We're, we're done with that now. Um, we're never done with 1993. We said that. We agreed to it. That's true. Um, although I have some high-minded designs on 1994 now that I've looked into it. Um, okay. What was the question? So, it's a, it's about the two runs. I I know enough to answer it. So you know, I I'm really glad I read this. I'm very glad that I read this. I cannot deny that it is relevant. I also can't deny that it's terrible. It really like you know, Tori being like, "You did not warn me." Uh, I kind of am like, I I don't know that I will end up recommending this to somebody else unless I know intimately what their fandom experience is like and know that they want to see those important fulcrum moments for characters and how they swing to the next thing. Uh, I, for all that I can see how daredevil goes from being like, just kind of the guy you can throw street level plus adventures at, uh, to being like really the character that we conceive of today. Somebody who is, uh, constantly unsure of himself you are so muted right now an avenger for god's sakes yeah i mean he's an avenger but you know he's constantly unsure of himself he has the the catholic guilt to end all catholic guilt he is a mess of a man he uh loves righteous violence you know he is so sure of his ability to enact swift justice uh, with violence and uh, he both loves that he is able to help people and hates himself for always resorting to that and to swing it back to uh, this this new run we did see he is given this gift by God to uh, live in God's house as a man of God and, and live in God's love and Nico is you that pointed out because I was just like I don't understand I think something's missing here. Like, I know there's supposed to be more issues. So I didn't even really absorb what was happening, but you really explained, like he gets this, this thing, this ultimate thing that he says he wants, and then immediately sets it aside to enact righteous violence, because that is what his body knows to do. That is what he is as a person. And even when, you know, he was saying that he would do all of these great acts, uh, as the, the head of the fist, uh, for God, you know, for good and for God, he, in fact, uh, in a certain way, just could never figure out how to do anything but violence. And so when he is given the reward to not have to anymore, that's not actually the reward. That's not actually what he wants. And so here we are. And all I know is we are only sort of rehashing. We're not even like it was so beautifully done. Uh at the end of Zadarsky, and I don't know that I felt the same emotion redoing it a second time at the start of this new number one. So now I don't know what we're doing. I don't know where we're going. If this is a slow exploration of exactly that concept that Matt pinned all of his hopes and dreams on being God's warrior and got completely screwed by that and now needs to get new hopes and dreams that acknowledge the fact that the only thing he has known to love is righteous violence, 
that might actually be phenomenal. Uh, if this is just how we get Matt back into Hell's Kitchen with a solid tie-in to the book that it came from, and then it's a new story where something else happens, that's going to be a little tougher for me. Uh, but I await with bated breath, and again, like... This is somebody's concept that they worked hard on. It might not work for me because I'm really invested in hot mess, righteous violence, Matt, who has this gorgeous girlfriend that Marco Cicchetto draws her hair uh, like nobody else uh, and does the same with Mary, by the way. God, so perfect. Uh, and so, you know, nobody's doing anything wrong if it doesn't vibe with me. But it does just sort of mean that I might not be so there on the journey. And it might take me, you know, letting some issues build up over time to sort of understand this new direction for Daredevil. If that's what we're getting, we'll find out. You know, I really love all of your points. And they actually led me, not that I wasn't paying attention. Like, no, I was no. literally, they led me to putting my nine biggest runs by major writers in order. Yeah. And number one is Wade, number two is Miller, number three is Bendis, mm -hmm. number four is Nascenti, and number five is Zadarsky, with no reflection on how strong his run was, but rather his competition. Yeah. Brubaker sits at number six, with Smith at seven, Diggle at eight, and Chichester at nine. But the reason I bring this up, and that whole list, is because I say that Guardian Devil sits at number seven, and I say that Brubaker's sits at number six but if you ask me brubaker has maybe the second best number one of any daredevil writer ever it just doesn't wind up being as perfect a show uh, or as perfect a run so you know this could be I the opposite about... this could have started a little slow and just exactly. absolutely take off and i would love to see that i solid has written some phenomenal stuff i really again nobody gets to this job just being terrible at it and truly uh, especially, you know, with this younger crop of writers, I will say, you know, some of the older guys, it was a bit of a boys club. There were connections to be had. And that still happens, by the way. And women and queer people and people, uh, non-binary people get left out of the club a lot of the time. But we see a lot of people that we can connect with and sort of know that they're working really hard. And they are trying to tell the best story that they possibly can in earnest uh and a lot of us could not get up every day and do what they do so you know all the time when i say this stuff i'm never saying this guy did bad this guy can't write exactly uh what i'm saying is this just isn't what i torin grunbeck is writing an x-men book right now but this is not my conception of the era for the x-men books so even though i'm just in love with the idea of torin grunbeck writing an x-men book I'm not full-throatedly singing about this all the time because, you know, it's just not my era right now. I just need to say, Polar Nights, thank you. It is the perfect evolution of yeah, Beard Yeah, you know, we, we, do, we do all sort of do our things. I think I shaved the last time a week ago. Uh, it looks great, buddy. Thank you. Daredevil is my favorite thing in the whole wide world. Uh, yeah, it, it is, is literally my phone background right now. Yeah. It is the background Kevo made for this episode. Yeah, uh, it comes up I've, once a day easily. Uh, you know, TK, where can everybody find you if they want to hear all of your incredible Daredevil opinions? You can find me at TK Elemental. As for me, you can find me at Nico Action, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. But more importantly, you can find the show at X's for Show on all your socials. That's X-I-S- 
F O R S H O W. Cool. That's X of the show. S O S H. S O S H. So, um, and that's what you should do. So, shh. Anyway, uh, we are X's for show, and you got to do three things for us to make sure we see you next time. Number one, you got to stay safe. That's the most important thing you can do so we can see you next time. But number two, while you're staying safe, I need you to be brave. It's important to stay safe, but you got to push yourself every day. Hey, wow, Polar Nights is uh, all the way from North Norway. That's amazing. That's so far. Thank you so much. It's actually for watching from North Norway. Right. And uh, we are uh, number three asking you guys to evolve daily. If you can just be a little bit better than you were yesterday, that's always the goal. And different is better every day. Or so, uh, get a we... superpower. However, oh, yeah, you want to no. evolve. I just, you know, do it. Just don't do it the 60s way. Don't play with radiation. That's no, not the secret. No, sir. No, thank you. Um, but, uh, you know, until we see you guys next time, those three things. And we can't wait to see you on Saturday. You are the best.